grand fanfare welcome to our podcast, Keeping Up With The Windsors, dedicated to the royal family. Each episode will be crammed to the rafters with opinions, news and commentary on the comings and goings of the family of Windsor. With your hosts and royal fangirls, Rachel Andrews and Michelle Thole. So grab yourself a cuppa, straighten up your tiara, shine your knighthood, round up your corgis and and let's keep up with the Windsors. It's finally here, the Crown Season 1 special. Yay! Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Michelle. And we are so excited. We've been talking about doing a Season 1 Crown special for so long and now we're doing it. To be honest, I feel the weight on my shoulders of how much expectation is going to come up from this episode because we've had so many requests to do the crown synopsis, like go real deep in it, you know, let us know your thoughts. So Royal Community, remember this is a conversation, not just for Rachel and I, but for you as well. Come on into Instagram at Keep It Up With The Windsors Pod and let us know what you think of the crown. We're only going to cover season one in this episode. So be prepared for some more Crown specials coming up very soon. Right, let's get started. Let's give an overview of The Crown then, Rach. Well, can you believe that season one was released back in November 2016? No, I, 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 I honestly, I'm flabbergasted. That's so long ago. But I did watch it when it first came out. I was straight on the ball with it. Day one, I started watching. I was the total opposite. I didn't watch it until after season two came out because it was one of those things, I think I've said it before, that because I love the Royals, I was kind of a bit, I don't know, not scared, that's the wrong word, but I was a bit dubious of what it was going to be. And then obviously I watched it and I fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm the biggest Matt Smith fan you'll ever meet. And so as soon as I heard that he was playing Philip, I was like, right, that's it. I've got to watch it. So I've been, I watched it from day one. Um, okay, so let's talk about casting then, Rach. What do you think about the casting? Well, Claire Foy, me, Obviously, we've only had Claire Foy and Olivia Coleman so far. But for me, she just embodied the Queen totally. She captured the anxiety and worry Elizabeth must have felt when she became Queen and the expectations that were put on her. You could really feel that from her as a character. And I absolutely loved that with Claire Foy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I just think about what it must have been like for her to audition for that role. That must have been so hard. and But I absolutely loved Claire Foy. I was gutted when she left. And I wanted to see her in like prosthetics looking really older when she got older. Yeah. I'm not actually quite sure why she left in season two. Do you know this, Rach? Yeah, so the producers of the show wanted to show the characters as they got older. And they felt like they couldn't do that with the same people that played those characters. And that's why you'll have... From season four, Olivia Coleman going into Imelda Staunton because we're having, you know, these different time periods of the Queen's life and the rest of the royal family. And it's just a natural progression. But I agree that like, I, because I loved Claire Foy mm. and Matt Smith, I was so upset when it was announced that that's how they were doing it. And yeah. I absolutely 
loved Vanessa Kirby as Princess Margaret. And I think there's some standout episodes, which we'll talk about in a second, but some standout episodes where her acting skills are phenomenal. So she's a real, like, real up there for me. And I it was a joy to watch her on screen. Yeah, I agree. And I'd never heard of Vanessa Kirby before. I'd heard of Matt Smith. I don't think I'd actually heard of Claire Foy either. And that's what I liked about this series is they kind of got some people that were playing the characters. They were kind of more unknown. And I really enjoyed that because you could feel them as the people that they were portraying. And Vanessa Kirby, for me, she just portrayed Margaret's vulnerability mm. and the fact that she wants to be accepted and loved so much. I really got that from her and I really felt that from her. Yeah, and she did some great horse riding acting, which always <laughs> gets me to the point where I'm like, yes, you go, girl. Galloping really, really hard. Fantastic stuff. So I know you said about Matt Smith, but what did you think of him being cast as Prince Philip? I loved it. I thought he played the role so well. I, I will talk about how I felt about how they portrayed Prince Philip when we go into the deep synopsis of each episode. But I thought he was fantastic. There was a scene where they're both together, Clairvoy and Matt Smith, and the chemistry is electric on screen. And I was just smiling, just watching them. I just loved seeing them together. They were such an amazing pairing as actors and they played the role so well. Yeah, I agree. For me, um, Matt Smith, he plays like the perfect cad. <laughs> What's a cad, Rach? I don't know what a cad is. Like a bit of a, not a playboy, but a bit of a ladies' man, a bit of a, you know. A chauvinist pig. <laughs> 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 but that's the thing about Matt Smith, though, as Philip, is that you really, in some of the scenes... You really want to dislike Philip, yeah. but Matt Smith brings something to the character that you can't help but not like. Yeah, there's a real human aspect to it, isn't it? Like he is, and I think this is what you see in his portrayal. You see the the anguish and the pain of his past, but then also that he's safe now in his current situation. And he really brings home that, well, do you know what? I'm just going to do what I want. But also there's this role and this duty that he's really respectful of. Yeah. But it doesn't really say that in The Crown. So <laughs> um, he's not portrayed that way. Mm, yeah, I agree. And I think another big character, especially in season one, is John Lithgow as Winston Churchill. Wow. What a fantastic character. You think of Churchill, you think of like a really stoic, you know, you always see him in his elderly years, don't you, in pictures and stuff. But this man got us through the World War. I'm not saying anything about politics or what he stood for, but he's really synonymous. And I think sometimes when, and we'll probably speak about this as we go along, but when you're playing somebody very historical, and especially someone like the Queen who's still alive, we have a preconceived idea of who those people are. So for him, and for Clairvoy, I think they had the hardest job. And obviously Matt Smith. Well, all of them really. <laughs> they all had a hard job because they're all playing people that are within our timeline that we can just Google them and still feel connected to them. But more so with people who are still alive within the series. Yeah, I agree. And John Lithgow was actually one of the only actors that were not British because he is American. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, he is American. He was in Santa Claus the movie. Um, and I, I just loved him in Santa Claus. I mean, he's been in loads of things, but that for me is my favourite one. And obviously he was Lord Farquaad in, in Shrek. Uh, no way! Oh my goodness! I have literally only made that connection. <laughs> oh my 
god i'm not even kidding oh my goodness that is so funny oh and lord farquaad is in is john lifkoe yes <laughs> oh my goodness me wow i can never watch shrek now without thinking of him <laughs> <laughs> not the gun drop buttons i love shrek <laughs> so this show had a budget of a hundred million dollars wow and this was Netflix's first feature series that it produced itself. So for them to invest that money in their own production was um, a big commitment. And they must have known going forward that it was going to be a bit of a hit because why invest that money? It was like a Netflix original, wasn't it? Yes, there's some factual inaccuracies, maybe some even historical inaccuracies, but actually they really get the the message home about the monarchy of the role within the monarchy in the state and how it must have felt going from princess elizabeth into the queen and it, it's just a phenomenal series to watch that i even think about it now just going in thinking about going into series three where it changes i'm like no <laughs> i want it to be clear not because olivia coleman's done a bad job by the way it's just because i love claire foy i love her so much think she's honestly knocked it out the park let's move on to costumes then rach what do you think about the costumes oh well spot on the hair the makeup the costumes the sets oh it's just totally amazing (laughs) like i've actually written some notes and one of my notes was it's like eye candy in one minute I'm looking at the set then I'm looking at the costumes to me the whole thing is a masterpiece what I found very interesting was to see the way in which they use costume to depict social class and obviously you can say yeah of course well there's the queen she's got all the jewels there's somebody who's working in a newspaper well they got they've just got plain old clothes but the way in which they do that is so well done and it's actually very spot on for the time period and for British people. Not obviously, I know not, not everyone's British within the series one, but I'm just saying it from a British person looking at it and saying, actually, they did a brilliant job. Yeah, I agree. And what they did so well is coming out of the war when people didn't have a lot of money they still Mm. dressed well yeah so even if you didn't have the money you still looked put together and like you said I think they portrayed that so well even characters that you see extras walking down the street you know now I'm sure you said to me before that they even made every single extras clothes yeah so I watched a um a special on Netflix where it was the costume designer and they said each outfit is handmade. There was the only thing that was borrowed was the coronation dress that the Queen wears. And that piece was actually in an exhibition. It's obviously not the real coronation robes, but that was the only piece that was borrowed. Everything else was handmade. Wow. It's one of those things where if you are a costume designer, um, especially for TV and film, this is the big ticket prize, isn't it? Mm. You get to do so much and there's so much um, eclectic style there and you really get to showcase who you are. So, I mean, hats off to everyone, all the crew, all the camera people, you know, even Netflix for putting it together and especially the screenwriter and the director. Absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. 
really really brilliant and the sets um the attention to detail and the sets when you look at the palaces we've been to a few of them yeah it is like you're actually watching the palace the like the Buckingham Palace Mm. it's so lifelike there's some times when the Queen and Prince Philip are walking down the stairs of Buckingham Palace and I'm like how are they not in Buckingham Palace it looks so much like Buckingham Palace it freaks me out that's how how, (laughs) like honestly it's just spot on absolutely spot on and again what I really liked about especially season one is that it's visually dark Mm. because it's representing the time period of coming out of the war going into this new era this new Elizabethan age as we'll get on to yeah yeah but when you watch the whole series all together you just can't help but be wowed well I was wowed anyway Well, I was wowed too. So I mean, absolutely 10 out of 10 for me. I just, I just thought the the casting, the costume, the, the set design, honestly, the lighting, it was all absolutely spot on. And we saw quite a few tiara replicas, Rach. Did you count how many uh, tiaras there were? (laughs) I've not counted, but I've noticed the, um, the Cambridge tiara. Yep. The fringe tiara. Yep. That was there. Yeah, was the lovers the, the um, lovers not was that there? The lovers not, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was there. And there's a scene where Margaret is getting ready for a um, she's doing a speech, and Margaret's lady in waiting passes her a tiara and she puts it on. I want to bet that is the tiara, uh, well, the fake tiara from uh, the Crown standards that Meghan wore on her wedding day. And I had to rewind it, and then I I googled uh, the tiara, and I looked it in, and it looked very very similar. So I don't know whether that's a little Easter egg in there. So yeah, so I thought I'd just uh, mention that. And if you want to Google away, <laughs> our <laughs> royal community, feel free. <laughs> what did you think about the theme song? Ah, uh, actually, that's that's one point that we have not made yet. The music. And the background music throughout the whole of the series was phenomenal. Like, yeah, phenomenal. And I actually really enjoyed the um, the music for the intro. I do have to say, whilst preparing for this episode today, Rachel and I did have to watch the whole of the 10 um, episodes within a couple of days. <laughs> and so <laughs> I did skip the, um, the intro on every single one because I know what it's like. Plus, I also watched it on 1.5 speed. So <laughs> the, I, I mentioned earlier about Margaret galloping. The gallop was way faster for me because it was <laughs> 1.5 speed. But the music was absolutely wonderful. It's like an integral part of the show. And what I really um, like is that as the series goes on, those pieces of music are woven back into certain scenes. Yeah. So when there's um, like a scene, I don't know, in season three or four where Charles is, you know, a, a bit melancholy, there's this piece of music that comes in and you're like, oh, here we go. That's yeah. that's referencing, oh, you know, he's going to be feeling this. And yeah, it just is such an integral part of the show. And I, I really enjoyed that. Mm. And I also loved how they used the staccato bits from the intro, the duh kind of uh, thing when whenever the queen became a bit more powerful whenever she started to exert her authority they'd have that at the background and I was like yes I love I love symbolism in music I just love it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I think have we not talked about the music it's 
like you say, I think it's like the icing on the cake, isn't it? And it's a wonderful cake that mm. we're, we're eating. So we're very, very happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're going to dive into each episode and we're going to give a little synopsis on each episode and then what we thought. Yep, so let's get going with episode one. And it's called Wolverton Splash. A young Princess Elizabeth marries Prince Philip. As King George VI's health worsens, Winston Churchill is elected Prime Minister for the second time. Ooh. <laughs> so the opening scene, the king is coughing up blood. And what I really liked about this, not that the king was ill. <laughs> oh, God. But that... You didn't start that right. <laughs> not that the king was ill, but that it doesn't go straight into Elizabeth's reign. That it has that it sets a bit of a backstory, so we're getting information that maybe we would not have known before. I think that was super important because they had to get the abdication of King Edward VIII in because he does play a pivotal role throughout the series. That I think it was more for backstory they started when they did. But I agree with you. I actually like the fact that they started when they did and they didn't do flashbacks to that time. It was nice to get to know. King George VI, and obviously Edward and Wallace. So we start off then in November 20th, 1947. And this is when Philip is denouncing all of his Greek titles and he becomes a naturalized British subject. Yeah, so this was one of those things where we realized that this is the stripping of his identity and birthing a new, you know, husband, king consort in the future. There's there's a lot riding on this first scene. And I thought it was quite important that we start off with Prince Philip, actually. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I noted Matt Smith is so handsome as Philip. <laughs> but then when you look back at old photos of Philip, he was he was quite the catch in his heyday, wasn't he? <laughs> he was very dashing. He was. Yes, he was. You can really sense that Elizabeth is just so smitten with Philip. Yeah, I mean, she she was she looked like the cat that got the cream. <laughs> so then we get the famous royal wedding. <laughs> yes. Now, at the time, this caused great celebration in the country and around the Commonwealth because, as we've said before, the war had ended and it's it's known that people were sending in their ration cards yeah. to help make this dress, which is wonderful that, you know, there was this princess that could afford her dress, but the people, it was such a joyous occasion for them to be involved with that they could feel a part of that day. Yeah, it does really remind me of when Catherine and William got married and we were all down with a credit crunch and then it did lift our spirits. Plus we had the London Olympics as well. So it, it really does lift everybody's moods. Yeah, what I liked about this scene during the wedding is that Elizabeth seems really, really nervous. Mm. And Claire Foy just brings out that she's kind of like that little girl lost in a sense. And then she's saying her vows and there's that moment where she looks at Philip and it's kind of like, oh, it's going to be okay. You know, look at me. And they're like looking at each other and, you know, he's making funny faces at her. And I was like, oh, it's just so playful. Yeah. And 
I really enjoyed this scene. Mm. And there was a big um, hoopla about whether she did say obey in the wedding vows. But that's a very recent thing that people don't say obey. And I think that's a very traditional thing that people do say obey in their vows. And I actually went on YouTube and watched the wedding ceremony to see whether she did say it. And she actually (laughs) did say it. (laughs) Royal community, she did say obey. So, um, yeah, I thought that was uh, an interesting fact. But I think that's to do with more of the times as well. But yeah, and what I loved was it was a great occasion. Great to see them really easy going, easy breezy, enjoying their, you know, they're having their photos taken. The king comes along. I've bought you this video camera. She's like, why? Thank you. You know, um, that's not a um, actual uh, (laughs) impression. (laughs) (laughs) But then obviously we've got the king. He's coughing a lot. He's coughing, he's coughing, he's coughing. And then they kind of do a cut through to um, Charles and Anne being born and then they're in Malta and they're having this amazing time in Malta the um the Malta scenes are great because they're a young carefree couple you know they've got their two children and Elizabeth is the wife and Philip is the one you know he's the head of the family he goes out to work he had a very successful navy career and you just get this sense of they're very very happy at this point in time And obviously then we know, because we know what happens, that the king just becomes more ill and more more ill. One thing that surprised me about this episode is that they operated on the king in Buckingham Palace. And I was like, whoa, like that's not sanitary, is it? (laughs) Is it sterile? Was that even hygienic at that time? (laughs) I know, I know, right? But I think it was more to do with the privacy of the king. So I, I, I'm sure, obviously, and now we know that they go to a hospital now. They don't just operate at Buckingham Palace. But I thought that was a quite interesting uh, point to remember from history. One thing that I noted here was the king was showing Elizabeth the red boxes. So it's not just, although it seems carefree, always in the back of her mind, she's always going to be the next queen. So we can never really get away from the whole monarch um, aspect even though it would have been nice obviously for the king to have lo- lived longer and for them to have enjoyed more of their marriage together and to bring up their children together but that wasn't to be yeah this scene it was the kind of like for me it was like the king was showing Elizabeth the ropes when he says to her yeah oh I tip the papers over because all the stuff at the bottom is the stuff they don't want me to read you know it seems less important but it is actually important so yeah 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 and there's a scene later on in the series where she becomes queen and she does that herself I think Garrett Harris who played King George VI was brilliant and I think he embodied that role very well he ticked all the boxes let's put it that way we then pan to the family at one of the royal residences and there's a scene where the king takes Philip on a shooting trip and, you know, he's having a little bit of a conversation with Philip. I've written down that he says she is the job. She is the duty. At this point, I was like, wow, that must have been a moment. Obviously, we don't know if those words were ever spoken. Exactly. <laughs> I just really liked that. And it was kind of like the king was subtly preparing Philip and telling him, you know, my end is coming and This is what her role is and you have to support her with this role and this duty that she has. Yeah, especially because at this point, the king knows that he hasn't got long, but he didn't tell any of his family 
people what the crown says that he didn't tell the family. And he says she's the essence of your duty, loving her and protecting her. There wouldn't be greater acts of patriotism. And what I love with this is the fact that, you know, that Philip has just had this naval career and now that's his next job. His next job is to make sure that Elizabeth is comfortable as monarch and to support her in any way possible. And that is the next job for him. And I think it was really important to finish on that because then it sets the tone for the rest of the series. So let's move on to episode two then. What are the main standout points from this episode, Rach? Want to give us a synopsis? So this episode is called Hyde Park Corner. With King George too ill to travel, Elizabeth and Philip embark on a four-continent Commonwealth tour. Party leaders attempt to undermine Churchill. So this is when they go on that very, very long tour. They leave the children at home. And for me, it's like a second honeymoon for them. They're very much in love. And I I get the sense that these people were celebrities of their day. I don't know, because I I still feel like she, she probably would still have the respect of a monarch, but they still would be fascinated by her. And the fact they don't see her often, and then all of a sudden she's right in front of their face... Is, is a massive deal. And I think it's so different now than it was then. Because now if we want to talk about, I don't know, Justin Bieber, we'll look on Instagram, won't we? Whereas with the Queen, um, you don't know where she is until she's right in front in of you. In your face. So, yeah, until she's like, Pam! <laughs> One thing I did actually pick up from this is just the, the use of technology. Because remember, she's on the opposite side of the world and there's only letters and there's only phone calls. You know, there's no FaceTime, there's no internet, there's no other way. And also we saw um, in quite a few of the scenes within the first series of all of the the call people who connect, the call operators yeah. who connect one to another and it takes them about half an hour. <laughs> Could oh. you imagine? Well, I remember so, what it was like back in the day when we first had internet. <laughs> you know, yeah, was... dial yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's... I mean, when when you leave your kids at this time, you are leaving your kids. We do start off with Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip, or Philip at the time, I don't think he was Prince, was he? Um, no. In Africa. What do you want to say about Africa, Rach? I'm <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Since when did Philip become the elephant whisperer? <laughs> He's become Steve Irwin all of a sudden. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> this is what I love about, about the crown. Sometimes it turns into a bit of a soap opera and yeah. also also a nature documentary. <laughs> so we also know that uh that Philip what I mean he has these quips and these insults and we see in this fabricated scene it didn't happen in real life where he he walks past an African king and he, he takes the mickey out of the medals that he's got and says, oh, that's a nice hat. And then Elizabeth says, that's his crown. And um, I think, you know, it's just one of those situations where the scriptwriter brings in a part of the personality that we know of Philip, but in a different scene. So, yeah, this is one of those things that isn't true. It's, it's you know, it's part of the crown scriptwriting. But again, it's still um, still synonymous with his character. So whilst Philip and Elizabeth are on their tour, 
you've got the home life of the king with the queen and Princess Margaret. There's a scene where Margaret and the king are at the piano and they're singing. And I really felt the connection between them as father and daughter. And, you know, Margaret kind of like nods her head as if to say, "You, you look, you've got an audience. And I felt for me, it was like the king's swan song. Like this was his, you know, going out piece. Absolutely. I felt the same way. Because in the next scene, he's equerry goes to wake him he's his butler goes to wake him and he's dead he's found dead in his sleep and then we get this real shift within the episode princess elizabeth is now queen elizabeth and she doesn't know and there's most of i'd say a good portion of the episode where we all know she's queen she has no clue she's queen and they're trying to not get this in the public or out into the press until she knows and that is one of those those moments isn't it that'd be really awkward all of a sudden if somebody just flashes a camera in your face your Your majesty (laughs) yeah exactly there is a real shift of of tone in this episode yeah and philip has to tell Elizabeth that her father has passed away Mm. and this is actually true this did happen so Philip was told by a local Kenyan newspaper reporter that the king had passed away and later on in the afternoon when the couple was back where they were staying Philip told Elizabeth that her dad had died and then she took a walk around the gardens and then began writing to world leaders apologizing that she'd had to cancel the rest of her trip Now, that's just amazing to know that that happened at that point, you know, grieving your father and then you're having to apologise. Oh, sorry, I've got to go home now. Sorry. (laughs) I've got to become queen (laughs) later. And then we get the uh, Princess Elizabeth at the time, now turned queen, her private secretary telling, um, asking her, you know, what name do you want to be? And then she was like, I'm going to be Elizabeth. I'm Queen Elizabeth. And then from that point on, we go, right, okay. Now she's Queen Elizabeth. Now the rain starts. So I think there's a real defining moment, isn't there? We're like, right, okay, she's Queen Elizabeth. This is where it starts. Yeah, and Martin Charteris says to her, long live Queen Elizabeth. And Philip and Elizabeth turn around and the look on their faces. And I think this is the point where it's like, oh my God, yeah, I'm now queen. Like our lives have changed forever. Yeah. And then you get Queen Mary's letter. Um, what exactly did she say in the letter, Rach? So she says there was a there was a line that I pulled out, which I thought was um, really impactful. You must mourn Elizabeth Mountbatten as she is replaced by Elizabeth Regina. And then she goes on to say the crown must win. Yeah, the crown must win. And then we end the episode with the queen going to visit the king's body as she comes out of the room. She's then greeted by the Queen Mother at that. Now she's the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret. And there's a massive change in their family dynamic because now Elizabeth is head of the family um, and they curtsy and they kiss her. And there's this moment where the Queen Mother holds Princess Margaret back. Like, you need to know your place. You need to be behind her now. You're not in front. You're You're not on the same playing field as her she's the star basically and it was such a a massive clunk wasn't it in in the way in which they they interact within their family dynamic and then we get the scene stealer and then we get it we get the scene honestly it's so so, it's like queen mary in that long black veil and you said it's like something out of a horror film (laughs) i well i'm not kidding if it wasn't the crown say if i was 
if I walked into a room and someone's watching The Crown and it was that bit, I would swear they were watching a horror movie. <laughs> what is going on? It was so weird. And the way she walked, she walked so slowly. I'm like, come on, girl, walk a bit faster. And then, and then, and then we get the curtsy of all curtsies. She did a princess usually curtsy, didn't she? She went, damn. <laughs> yeah, she went so, she went, um, what's that song? Low, 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 <laughs> low, low. <laughs> and, and this is basically the recognition now of Princess Elizabeth now becoming the position and the monarch. Um, not only of the family, but of of the the Commonwealth. Yeah, she at this point she's not Elizabeth; she is the Queen. She's the Queen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this episode was all about the start of the institution versus um, the family dynamics and protocols that were be- before then, and now everything's changed. So we really do get a change of pace here. So let's move on to episode three. What is in store for us? Let's find out. So let's get a synopsis then of episode three. Episode three is called Windsor. With Elizabeth in a new role, Philip tries to assert some power. Churchill wants to delay the coronation. King George's disgraced brother returns. Dun, dun, dun. Ooh, (laughs) we're getting all these stenders on us. So we actually start the episode with a flashback to the abdication of Edward VIII. And obviously I've heard about the abdication. I've read about the abdication, but it was quite good to see that side that the crown portrayed yeah because it really upsets the whole institution and the fabric of the monarchy at that point in time well I mean I know that Edward and Wallace didn't have children but they could have had children and that could have been the the next bloodline and we obviously wouldn't have had the queen and and um William and Charles in, in the direction that we're going in today so that decision changed and it, like you said, it was it was like a fracture in the monarchy. And how do we move forward from that? And I, it's so lucky the Duke of York at the time said, yeah, I'll be king. I don't think he had much of a choice, though, to be fair, did he? No. <laughs> They're like, please take, take the, the role. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, the main thing here from the, the episodes that we've already um, watched is, and especially Queen Mary's letter saying the crown must win. And the reason why she was so gung-ho on, on driving that message through to the queen, you know, to Elizabeth, is because she's had a son that's abdicated and that's such a massive shame. It's, it's like a scar on the family and it must have been so, so shameful, especially in an aristocratic family, because your society and your power and your, your reputation is everything. And he was like, I don't care. Mm. I love this person. I'm going to choose her instead of your country, instead of being anointed by God, instead of the weight of the Commonwealth on your shoulders, yeah. he chose mm. Wallace. And you really felt the strained relationship between Queen Mary and her son, mm. the former King Edward VIII. Um, and you can tell, like, the way it's portrayed, he's a real disappointment to her. You know, he just brought shame on the family. And he was banished from England when he married get Wallace to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. the marriage would not was not accepted by the church. Obviously, as the monarch, he would have been head of the um, Church of England. And it would just not, it just would not have been accepted. This really um, is portrayed throughout the whole of the first season. And you really see this in the future episodes when 
Margaret and Townsend are trying to get married, it, you really kind of like feel for Edward in a way because it's like, well, he had to give up everything to marry the woman that he loved. And he did that. And in a way, that was really brave of him to do that. But as a character, I really don't like him. He's a bit of a slime ball. <laughs> he is a slime ball. But I actually think the opposite. I think the most courageous thing to do is to give up love because love is the ultimate reward for you to give that up and to actually go with duty. That is more courageous and that is more brave. It, it might not be the right decision for every single person, but I think that is the most courageous. And I, I think what Margaret did breaks my heart even thinking about it. But I think what she did was so brave, was so brave. And she put country above herself but we've got a bit of a three-way going on here and I don't mean that (laughs) we've got a triangle happening here we've got the abdication of King Edward VIII we've then got and we find this out in this episode because we get the first connection between Margaret and Townsend and then we have a current day fracture within the family which is Harry and Meghan so we see it go in throughout the stages of what the last hundred years. Three people, and I think it might probably be more, but three people who have had to make that decision. Now, another important storyline within this episode is the children, Charles and Anne, not having the same name as Philip, the same surname as Philip. And there's this real battle for the children to be named Mountbatten mm. and Michelle, the 1917 letter pattern is mentioned. Yay! <laughs> the famous letter pattern. We've spoken about it so much on the podcast, but it makes an appearance. <laughs> so Churchill in this episode discourages the name Mountbatten. And I really felt for Elizabeth because she's really trying in this scene that she's having with Churchill to fight for Philip and the name and At this point, she thinks that she's won the battle, but she has not won the war. (laughs) Oh, no. I don't think she's ever going to win the war, really, is she? Come on. (laughs) It's the institution we're talking about. Yeah. There's this great scene between Philip and Elizabeth when she's telling him the children can't be called Mountbatten. It's just not it's just not going to happen. And there's this this like real push and pull. And he says, am I the only man in the country for his wife and children not to have his name? Mm. And this to me is such a powerful scene because Philip must have felt so emasculated as, you know, the head of the family, quite an alpha male Mm. to not be able to give his children his surname. Especially at that time where the man gets like the main priority of power within the within the family dynamic. Also, we know from the very first episode, he's just given away all of his titles, all of his heritage, all of his um, what's the word, inherited status. And now what's left is a name that's been given to him by Lord Mountbatten. And he's saying, well, can I just keep this, please? Like, can I please like give this to my 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 children? And as we know now, if you are not styled as a senior member of the royal family, you will now be called Mountbatten Windsor. So Archie and Lily are Mountbatten Windsor. So the Queen did change that later on, but it's still not part of the his children's names, is it? Mm. And it's just so bizarre that. This has to be discussed in Parliament. It has to go through Cabinet. It's just one of those things. It's like, 
really look yeah. looking at it now you know when we're in 2021 but back mm. in the 50s I mean I don't know now if the queen has to ask permission to do certain things she probably does but it's just like when you look at it you're like God, I can't believe that actually happened. Yeah. And this is the reason why when Megan joined the firm, it was a massive eye-opener because she's divorced, she's Catholic, and all of a sudden, the Queen's like, welcome, come on in. And all the Great Britain are like, come on in, we love you. (laughs) So it, it was when you watch The Crown and how far we've come, it, it actually makes me feel proud today. Obviously, there's certain things that we need to change still. But although, and I think there's actually something, there's a quote that says, um, history um, changes, but it has to move slowly. And I think the Queen Mother says something like that, if I remember rightly, in a few, um, in an episode later on in the series. But that is synonymous with this. It does take time for change to happen, and it does happen slowly. But we are right now in 2021, and we know that, that if Margaret was alive today and she was with Townsend, she probably would be okay to marry him. Yeah, agree. And all of a sudden we find out that Prince Philip has become Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. He started (laughs) interior design. And then his two wishes was the kids have his name and for them to stay at Clarence house. And we find out that the kids can't have his name. And they're moving to Buckingham Palace. Poor swords. <laughs> Off you go. Just can't catch a break, can he? Oh, poor, poor Matt, Matt Smith. Smith. Poor <laughs> Prince Philip. Honestly, I think about Prince Philip and he was a remarkable man. And having to put up with all those changes. Wow. I mean, it just speaks to his, his character, doesn't it? Mm. Let's get on with episode four. What's the synopsis on this one, Rach? So this one's called Act of God. When dense smog cripples London for days and creates a serious health hazard, Churchill's inaction leaves him vulnerable to political enemies. Right. Okay. So first off, we, well, um, um, spoiler alert, (laughs) please don't watch this if you've never watched The Crown. Go watch The Crown first and come back. But spoiler alert, the secretary of Churchill, Venetia Scott, was actually made up by the screenwriter Peter Morgan. And the reason why is because he wanted somebody to represent the urgency of the problem of the fog. And actually she dies. And um, and then that that kind of spearheads Churchill to make a change. Let's remember, none of that happened. <laughs> none of that happened. Churchill didn't make that speech outside the hospital. Yes, the fog did happen. Let's put it that way. The fog happened, people. Yeah. But the way it was depicted on the crown was very Hollywood. And apparently it didn't make this massive like hoopla with everybody. They just went about their normal business. And I was, I've been in London when, you know, we've had riots and, you know, the terror attacks and people just get on with things. You know, that's just keep calm, carry on. That's the British motto. So um, I think that's probably a little bit dramatized to create a storyline that's not actually true. I remember asking my nan about this because she lived in London at the time and she said you couldn't see for miles. Wow. It only happened over a few days. But at the time, it was it was reported that up to 4,000 people had died. But more recent analysis put that figure at more like 12,000 people. And this is over like a five-day period as well, isn't it? 
it was a very short amount of time. Yes, yeah. At the end of the episode, it actually said that um, the Clean Air Act of 1956 was enacted to avoid a repeat. So at least change has happened because of that. But we did have a very stoic Churchill who was really a control freak as such, wasn't he? He's depicted as a control freak. Mm. Then for him to not be bothered about the fog, it's just a real 180 on his character. So it just didn't really gel this episode for me. I think it was just, right, let's talk about the fog. Um, So I don't know. I'm not a massive... it's a good episode, but I'm not a massive fan of the historical context and the storytelling within it. Yeah, I find sometimes on The Crown, they add in stories for the sake of putting something in, yeah. like a filler episode. Mm-hmm. Um, this episode of Churchill really annoyed me. I'm going to be totally honest. I didn't like him as a character in this episode. And like you said, like I've tried to search for the speech that Churchill's gives when he's at the hospital, it never took place. Mm-hmm. So again, it's very dramatised in that sense. And I think that's why a lot of people, when they watch The Crown, they go online after and they put in like, did so-and-so really happen? Or did you know yeah. so-and-so say that? Because you're just like, wait, did that happen? Or is it just made up? Yeah. And there is a fine line between the truth and dramatization and because the crown is so amazing at what it does you can get lured into a false sense of security but this this episode in particular although there was the fog some parts of it for me just was so disjointed Mm. and I think the only one I felt sorry for was Philip because he couldn't do his flying lessons (laughs) he wants to do all those spins even though he has to ask government to do the spins he can't catch a break this guy (laughs) (laughs) although um as we go along we do get two villains specific characters that the screenwriters have chosen to create the drama to really hone in on the stubbornness and the complete unchanging nature of the institution tommy lassell's (laughs) <laughs> one of them's Tommy Lassells, and then you'll find the other one is actually the Queen Mother. And in some of the dialogue that she says, she really does twist the knife in some of the interactions she has, especially with little hearsay things. And I'll get Tommy to do this for me, and it's it's very vindictive. And I, you know, I'm just like you can tell that's just the way they want to drive the story forward, rather than whether that actually happened or not. So yeah, Tommy. I love a good mustache. Look at him with his <laughs> mustache going on. His evil mustache. He's like, do you know when um you have Hollywood movies and then you have the quintessential villain who's always got a very strong English accent? <laughs> <laughs> he's that of the crown, but obviously everyone's got an English accent in the crown. <laughs> so he's like hiding in plain sight. But Tommy, I actually think the actor is amazing that plays Tommy. And he is the um, private secretary of the monarch. So he, if, if you remember in the crown, uh, the royal community, he's the one that retires. And then obviously we have the, the question of who's got to become the queen's private secretary. But that's coming up in a couple of episodes time. So anything else with the fog, Rach? Anything no. else you want to say with this episode? Yeah, it's one of those episodes. Sometimes with, with the crown, you get filler episodes where... I mean, you have little snippets of information, but they really hone in on the historical offence 
rather than the character driven storylines. And this was the historical event one. Right, let's move on to episode five. What synopsis have you got for this one, Rach? Smoke and mirrors. Ooh. Elizabeth rejects protocol by appointing Philip to coordinate her coronation, but his ideas create conflict. The Duke of Windsor returns to London. So we have a flashback of a young Princess Elizabeth with the king on the run up to his coronation, and he's practicing what will happen when he's been anointed. And there was this line that I picked out when he says, when the holy oil touches me, I am transformed. Mm. And this is really um, a significant moment because what you see from the crown and what we know of the actual coronation is this anointment was not filmed because it's an act between the monarch and God. Mm -hmm. And it's the monarch and God and the church coming together to create this one being. Because obviously back in the day, the whole point of the monarch was that you was appointed by God, that you were like the special chosen one as such. Yeah. And I think throughout this series, we hear that the monarch is only answerable to God and nobody else. You know, it's really drummed in to us that she answers to no one. She has all the rules that she she can do whatever she wants, but actually she can only do what a monarch should do. Right. So actually, we've got the coronation, which we've seen the coronation dress, haven't we, Rach? We've seen the Queen's coronation dress, and it's absolutely oh, stunning, breathtakingly beautiful. I stood looking at all the details of the coronation dress just as long as I stood looking at Gwen Stefani's wedding dress <laughs> in the, <laughs> the V&A um, exhibition we went to. Absolutely incredible the amount of diamonds on that dress is unbelievable it's honestly it is fit for a queen yeah and as I said at the start of the episode this was one of the only costumes that was not made um this was a borrowed replica of the actual coronation uh, gown that was used in an exhibition that they borrowed for filming this episode yeah and the big storyline running through this is that Prince Philip is said when she becomes queen, he doesn't want to kneel. And I actually think this is just a storyline that the scriptwriters put in to create drama between the two characters because it didn't happen. At the end of the day, Philip has been brought up in an aristocratic family. He was, he's royalty. So why would he disrespect something that has been part of his upbringing as well? It's not anything that he's just um, doing because he, he wants to make a point. It didn't happen. That's what I think anyway. It didn't happen. And it's just a fabricated um, storyline. Yeah, I, I just think it wasn't needed at all. I think they put it in, though, because you really in this episode feel, one, the great chemistry between Claire and Matt. That's incredible in this in this scene in particular, what you're talking about. I'm always here for the chemistry. <laughs> yeah. She says to him, you'll be kneeling before God and the crown. And he says, are you my wife or my queen? And she replies, well, I'm both. A strong man would kneel before both. She says to him, your wife is not asking you, but my queen commands me. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> That's uh, FYI, I'm not an actress, as you can probably tell. <laughs> I thought you did brilliantly there, Rich. Well done. But this scene is you you really feel the resistance from Philip um, because, again, it's that that power shift, isn't it? Because at home, he is the head of the family, but yeah. everywhere else, she 
is the head. Yeah. Like she is the crown. She is the monarchy. She is the be all and end all. And this day is about her. Mm. We said it before as well, which is true, that Philip had a very instrumental role in having the coronation televised. Yeah. This was something that was unprecedented. This never happened before. And, you know, he really wants to connect the people so that they feel that they are involved in this day. Mm -hmm. Like you said, we don't know. This conversation probably never even took place. But we know that that did. Yeah. In watching in watching this scene, it, I actually got chills because I was thinking, wow, we, when Charles becomes king and then William, are going to see this for ourselves and how amazing that will be. And just seeing it when I've seen, you know, the videos of the actual coronation and on the crown, if I'm getting chills from that, what am I going to be like watching? You're going to be a nervous wreck. taking place. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the one thing I was thinking when I was watching this episode was when the coronation happens and then all of a sudden the choral music started and I knew Rachel's going to love this bit. Zadok the Priest <laughs> starts playing and she's like, oh my goodness. Ah, 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 ah. And you're like, yes. Was that when you were getting chills when the choral music came in? No, it was actually the bit when she's been anointed. Mm. I was getting chills. So I was thinking, oh, wow, like this is a moment, you know. And one thing, a fact check that they didn't show on the episode was in the audience, they had the Queen Mother, Princess Margaret, but they had no Prince Charles. But Prince Charles was actually there at the coronation. Princess Anne was not. Mm -hmm. Princess Anne was too young to go to the coronation. Um, but she did appear on the balcony after with Charles and the rest of the family. But just thought I'd add that in as a little fact check because Charles as a child was actually there. Okay, so another question I had whilst I was watching this was where did they get the coronation holy oil from? You know, if it's that holy, where does it come from? So I did a little Google and it says it's the chrism and is sacred and used repeatedly with the same recipe used from the coronation of Charles the first in 1626. And um, I just find that fascinating. There's this oil that brings together a human and God, this human becomes the monarch and that is the, the moment. So yeah, that was one question I had. And also Edward, the confessor's chair that she sits on. I've seen, have you seen this before in real life, Rach? Years ago, yeah. Yeah, and it's a crumpled piece of mess. If you see it in real life, it's just a piece of wood. It looks like you, like the worst carpenter in the world's made it. It probably wasn't. The reason why I'm saying that is because it's a really old chair, not because it was badly made, but it just seems so, um, so ordinary for someone, for this type of event who she's got, and maybe that's probably one of the reasons why, because obviously it was used in all the coronations, but this chair is so ordinary, but it's about coming from the ordinary to becoming anointed. And um, I just thought, okay, there's that chair again. <laughs> there's the, there's <laughs> that the <damn> chair. chair. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also had King, um, well, the abdicated King, Edward, uh, playing bagpipes at the end and uh, having tears in his eyes. And I have to say, I'm like, that was too cinematic. That was so Hollywood for me. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Him and Wallace having a party, watching the coronation and him having to explain to all of these American guests what's yeah. happening. I think they were French, weren't they? 
some of them were they were in their, their French well French chatter. and American yeah but yeah. but um yeah to me I was just kind of I wasn't laughing like haha <laughs> yeah you were just like oh it was just kind of you know because he makes a point of saying well I didn't make it that far I didn't have mm. a coronation yeah and I was like oh get over it let's move on yeah <laughs> so um did Prince Philip kneel right that's the question of the whole episode did he kneel uh, in front of the queen at the coronation yes yeah so he did kneel didn't he gave her a kneel then gave her a little kiss on the cheek Aww. and did a little bow at the end to finish it off <laughs> i love it it's like a, a good old uh, strictly come dancing the uh, dance routine i love it <laughs> da, okay da, da, da. Da, 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 seven okay <laughs> so let's move on to episode six of the crown season one Margaret and Peter come to Elizabeth with a request. With a royal scandal about to break in the newspapers, the Queen Mother intervenes. Here she is, the villain. Queen Mother, <laughs> here she goes. Here she dun, goes. Dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay, so here is the start of the Margaret and Townsend love affair. So who was Peter Townsend? He was equerry to the king and after George VI's death, controller of the Queen Mother's household. Question for you, Rach. What is an equerry? I think it's just basically his right-hand man, isn't it? I've ne- I just never, I just never yeah. know when they say the word. A tabloid reporter covering the coronation in 1953 noticed Margaret flick a piece of fluff over Peter's jacket and this was enough to start relationship rumours. Those press, how dare they? Those pesky press people. I know. So this episode is basically what's the aftermath of this rumour coming out in the press. Some of these episodes coming up now is where Vanessa Kirby really shines and I, like I say, I just love her play in this character and I think actually Townsend, as his character evolves from what we see, he's a really likeable character, stable, uh, worthwhile, trustworthy guy, you know, he knows what the royal family's about, he would have made an amazing partner for Margaret it's just circumstance that means they can't be together it's really sad actually isn't it yeah and this is all because he's a divorcee which wasn't his fault his wife cheated on him but because the queen is the head of the church of England the church does not condone divorcees to remarry Mm. and this is one of the real sticking points that you see in the episode and the rest of the series and the whole reason why Peter is sent to Brussels for two years because it's that thing of well you're only she was only 23 Margaret was when this rumor came to light in the press and I just like I really in this episode feel for Margaret and Peter because you really get the sense that they are in love and they want to be together but because of who Margaret is and who her sister is that can't happen and that's really sad and you really sense, like you said, from Vanessa Kirby as playing this role, the vulnerability that she portrays in this character. Absolutely, yeah. Um, as it as an episode goes, it it really is just driving home this rumor coming out. Then Margaret talking to the Queen about getting her blessing, and um, then also we we kind of leave it there with the press and public backlash. They also said about how unfair the nature of the crown was against Margaret. So I think she had a lot of public support, but not institution or political support because of the institution that she she's born into. 
So yeah, it was just one of those just it just made me sad really I was like oh I don't like this episode <laughs> yeah because not only did she have to get the queen's permission but it also had to be passed through parliament who mm. has to ask the government who they can marry oh I know princess Margaret <laughs> ridiculous so we've got the episode talking about Margaret and Townsend's relationship being outed in the press and also we've got the struggle between the queen being the queen and also having her role as a sister and really being there's this push-pull feeling for her that when when should she put her queen hat on when should she put her sister hat on and we are left with the last scene of prince philip leaving to go on a lad's weekend is what i've written here a lad's weekend (laughs) and she's left alone with no emotional support and she's feeling guilty about her her conversations with margaret over townsend so it's one of those very emotional episodes that we know won't be ending well and i think that's what's hard about watching the crown it's a little bit like when you watch a titanic you know what's coming (laughs) and it's the same with the crown you know it's not going to end well oh yeah and like you said this is the first episode where the infamous lunch club is mentioned oh here we go good old lunch club blooming lunch club cause of all problems that lunch club (laughs) oh dare they okay episode seven then let's move on this one's called the potentia east as the soviets test the h-bomb both churchill and eden have major health crises angry about her inadequate education elizabeth hires a tutor Mm, i really love the scenes with the tutor with elizabeth i feel as if she really had to go with the queen mother for not giving her the education that she desired but actually she was given the education that she needed for the role in which she was being prepped for so it was a really nice way of finding out we found out a little bit about eisenhower didn't we rach yeah yeah and then we've also got the the foreign secretary, who's Anthony Eden, he was ill and he, my goodness me, can you remember this, this scene in this uh, episode where shooting up? <laughs> yeah, Eden passes this needle onto somebody. He's like, just find a vein. I'm like, yeah. uh, and then he did it so fast. And then I realized I was watching at 1.5 speed. So I was like, how did he find the vein so quickly? <laughs> But anyway, we find out that he had a gallbladder problem. He then had surgery for it. So he didn't actually go, uh, long story short, Churchill wasn't well. So he sent the foreign secretary, Eden, to have a a meeting with Eisenhower and the Russians who, you know, about this nuclear bomb. And in the end, Eden gets ill and couldn't go. So there was like a, a massive like power struggle between Churchill and Eden at the time. And then obviously we've got this lovely relationship forming uh, between the Professor Hogg, who is the Queen's new tutor. And I really like the dynamic between the two characters. I'm not quite sure, was he real? Did she have a tutor? Did he come in? No, no. So again, I've done a little fact check and there's no evidence that she ever hired a tutor. Oh, don't believe the crown people. Don't believe the, take it for what it is, an amazing like an amazing production of certain events (laughs) that have been whipped around into and used by a fantastic screenwriter to make it really dramatic and really you know binge worthy Mm. so yeah you cannot take this as fact well it's the same with Churchill because in this episode he has a stroke um which did happen in real life but in not the way that it's portrayed on the show 
So he was attending a dinner in honour of the Italian Prime Minister when he suffered a stroke in 1953. But obviously in the show, it's depicted that he's in bed, he's already not well, and he gets up because he's, you know, him, him and his wife having a little bit of a tiff and he's like... And then the Queen yeah. doesn't know and it's like, hang on a minute, what's going on here? He's yeah. got a cold. How? What? <laughs> And Lord Salisbury's like, we're not telling anyone. One thing I want to say about this, Rach, did you did you see? So let I'll, I'll bring you up to speed with this. Um, Eisenhower, because Eden couldn't meet with him in America, Eisenhower comes to, well, he's supposed to come to Buckingham Palace for his state banquet with the Queen. But it doesn't happen in the end. So the Queen goes to bed and Prince Philip is dressed for the state banquet. And he's like, no one told me the state banquet's uh, cancelled. And all of a sudden, <laughs> He kind of propositions her, doesn't he? For a little bit of hanky panky. <laughs> We're keeping, we are keeping this um a clean podcast. podcast. But they they yeah, there was a bit of hanky panky and a bit of like, you know, ooh. How was your father? <laughs> <laughs> so I've written that in, in great uh, note taking. <laughs> he propositions her for hanky panky. <laughs> so the other major storyline that's happening here is that Tommy, boo, Tommy the villain, boo, the private secretary of the monarch, he's actually retiring. And the Queen wants Martin Charteris to be the secretary but he is not in line to take over that role there's another person and in the end she's forced to take the other person as secretary because of politics and because of the institution and because they don't change any rules because that's the way it's always been so that's the way they'll always do it oh I felt so frustrated for the queen in this episode. Yeah. Most episodes I feel frustrated for her. She can't do anything, can she? I know. She just wants to break loose and, you know, ride a horse or something. Okay, so that is episode seven. Let's move on to episode eight, Pride and Joy. Elizabeth and Philip going on an exhausting world journey. Margaret takes over some of her sister's official duties and tries to liven things up. So let's start with one of my favourite scenes in this episode where Norman Hartnell, the dress designer to the Queen, is given a fashion show and she she kind of like mentions like, oh, isn't this a bit too much? And he says, 100 dresses, 36 hats, 50 pairs of shoes. It's all passed through government. It's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I love the way the Philip says that the monarchy is a bit like a coat of paint. You know, like everything's cracking under the surface, but we just put a little coat of paint on it, bring the monarch out and everyone's happy. Then, And the costumes, obviously, for the tour are part of that happiness. And I think that's the reason why he designed 100 dresses. Can you believe that? Mm, yeah. But I, um, I really enjoyed this like, as a fashion lover. And obviously because we've recently seen one of Norman Hartnell's dresses in the exhibition at Kensington Palace. And the Queen had a little pretty mo- woman moment, didn't she, where all the models came out and she was like, I want this one, this one, this yeah. one. <laughs> Do you have a tie? <laughs> and then they all curtsy at the end to her, don't they? Yeah. Oh, it's really cute. Um, we also had the Queen giving a speech outside the unveiling of her father's statue, King George VI statue. And we've actually seen that statue in real life, haven't we, mm. Rach? Yeah, we saw it only a few weeks ago. Yeah. And what I really found interesting this week doing prep for this episode was watching the Queen's 
um, speech, the actual Queen versus Clairvoy the Queen. And Clairvoy was so spot on. Even like the the timing and the way she said it. Oh my goodness me, the amount of work she must have done to get the accent right is unbelievable. And just to just because we are British, it doesn't mean we can speak the Queen's accent. <laughs> the Queen's accent is very unique. And it's very aristocratic. Hardly anyone I know, I mean, I'm not <laughs> blue blood, but hardly anyone I know actually speaks that way. One of the best scenes of this episode, though, oh, is... Go on, what? So they're on tour. Sounds weird. It's like they're in a band or something. <laughs> <laughs> they're in the band, yeah. I'm with the band! So they're on tour. You know, it's an exhausting trip. The Queen's had muscle relaxants shoved in her face. <laughs> Because she had a facial spasm. <laughs> she had a facial spasm because she can't, she can't, she's got one of those faces where it looks like she's, you know, annoyed. If she's... Apparently it's because she was smiling all the time. We don't know whether yeah. this is actually correct, by the way. This could just be yeah. Hollywood. So they're in Australia and Philip is saying to Elizabeth, you know, well, why can't we drop something? We'll just keep running until we basically stop and they end up having this argument when he storms off and she runs after him and she's like Philip and then the press are outside and they catch it all well dear listener did this happen in real life yeah did the queen and Philip have a ruckus did this actually happen Rach yes it did can you if you can believe it the crown got something right (laughs) it did happen everyone can we believe that so the camera crews that were outside the chalet where they were staying um, spotted Philip storm out of the door and then the queen emerged and she was, in quotes, visibly infuriated and raging. <laughs> and she was witnessed shouting and then hurled a tennis racket and shoes at him. Yeah. She dragged Philip back inside and then she went back to the reporters and said, I'm sorry for that little interlude, but as you know, it happens in every marriage. Now, what would you like me to do? <laughs> the film was actually handed over. So she does actually say that. Claire Foy does say that in mm. the episode. So, yeah. So it did happen. Do you know what I loved about this, this scene? Is this is the scene where I would have assumed they would have faked. Yeah. But it's actually the opposite. This is the one that actually happened. I'm glad that they showed a bit of a, you know, a, a marriage spat. That's just marriages, isn't it? It's not plain sailing at all. We also had a Margaret who was taking on the role of engagements whilst the Queen was away on tour. And she was very, um, let's say, loose with the way in which she spoke the, hand, the, the speeches that had been written for her, the way in which she interpreted that at some of the engagements. We end the episode with the Queen giving her a little bit of a telling off for being so lax with her manners and her protocol as as, um, representative of the crown. Okay, Rach, we're on episode nine now. Episode nine is called Assassins. What's the synopsis, Rach? As tensions with Philip increase, Elizabeth spends time with her old friend Porchy. Churchill's portrait is painted for his 80th birthday. So, who was Porchy? So, Lord Porchester was a childhood friend of the Queen and he served as a member of the Royal House Guard during World War II and later accompanied Princess Elizabeth to society events. He became the Queen's racing manager in 1970 and she is actually godmother to his son. Oh, that's nice. A little bit of fact for you there. That is. I actually 
don't like this episode. I don't like this episode because they really did try and dramatize a big hoo-ha about Porchy and the Queen. And all she kept saying throughout the episode is, I only love Philip. Like, Philip's the only man I've loved. So actually bringing this up is a mute point to me. Yes, okay, we now see Philip... And I think they really did dramatize the amount of laddish behavior, the amount of partying and completely being away from the queen. And I don't think Prince Philip comes off nicely in this crown episode, sorry, in this crown series as a whole. And I think that he is, I hate to say it, I'm going to say it, but I don't mean it in this way. But I think he was a lot more boring in his actual life. And they've brought out a little bit more of a spice to his personality. And I'm not actually liking that about this series and their depiction of Prince Philip. And I also just don't love this episode. I mean, it's it's just about the tension between her and Philip. And then they try and do this um, this juxtaposition between her and Porchy having these lovely conversations about horses and then Philip not really caring or not knowing about horses. Do you know what? It would be boring if everything you liked was exactly the same as your husband. Your marriage is strong when you have likes and dislikes and you have different interests, but also some things that are the same. So it, it just felt like a massive mute point. And then there was two horses doing it. And I was like, what's the point in this episode? Well, the point is, the whole episode is they're insinuating that, you know, there's a bit of attraction between Porchy and Elizabeth and there always has been. And the scene where the horses are doing it, Philip says something <laughs> like to the Queen, like, well, as long as you don't sit on him. <laughs> I was just like, what? I know! I know! I know! And I'm, oh my goodness me, like, oh my I gosh. I was just like, really? Did that come out? <laughs> I know. I'm trying to see in my notes where I actually wrote about that bit, because that's quite, you know... What did I see? What did I write? There's loads of notes in this one. Prince Philip remarks about Porchy getting the direct line to the Queen because now he's got her direct line because he had to go through all the phone operators. And he tells her that as long as she doesn't sit on the furniture, because she remarked that he now has a direct line because he's part of the furniture, like he's just part of the family. And Philip says, as long as you don't sit on the furniture, then all is well oh <laughs> and I was just like oh my goodness me. and then look and then you see basically this slanging match in the car yeah you can't really hear the conversation but you can tell they're both going at it and they're yeah. just having like this marital spat and it's like wow okay but again it makes you think like I bet a lot of people who've watched this episode have googled what happened with Elizabeth and Porchy yeah. or you know yeah we also have the side-by-side storyline of Churchill having his painting um, done for his 80th birthday. And that was a whole thing. And we learned lots about Churchill. I'm not actually a massive fan of the way in which they use Churchill to drive storylines within series one. And I think a lot of the time, like for instance, he he spoke to Margaret about calming her ways down in um, episode eight. And I'm like, I'm not even quite sure whether he would have had that conversation with her. You know, I think there's certain decisions script wise that they made that always brought people they've already 
used before oh let's put Churchill in this scene let's put Tommy in this scene and I just wonder whether that actually did happen or whether they're just using people we're familiar with so don't have to introduce us to new people to drive that storyline or that narrative in the way in which they wanted to remember this is a tv show every piece of information you get might not actually have been that person telling the other person exactly that thing so you have to really see it in an objective way and that's something that I find really difficult. The Queen gave a speech at Downing Street for the official banquet of Churchill to say thank you. He's he's 80. And she said the words magnanimity. And I was like, whoa, what a <laughs> word. I was so I was so impressed. I wrote it down because I'd never heard that word before. So there we go. That was my uh, little uh <laughs> my little two cents about the episode. <laughs> yeah and we actually um we revisit Porchy and Elizabeth in season three. And again, it's one of those things where when we record that episode, you're going to find out, did it happen or not? Did Elizabeth go to America with Porchy? Stay tuned. Ooh, stay tuned. And with that in mind, let's head to the absolute final episode, episode 10 of series one of The Crown. And it's Gloriana. So synopsis time for you, Rach. What's the synopsis on this one? Margaret and Peter are reunited, but another obstacle stands in their way. Elizabeth is torn between her duty as queen and her love for her sister. Oh, this episode oh, is just... I just feel oh. there's an episode... I know we're going to talk about the beginning of the episode, but <laughs> the, the end of the episode where Peter Townsend goes back to Brussels and there's that scene where he oh, looks at Margaret's photo and then he's, he's looking at the picture. And then he starts crying. I was like, oh, oh. Peter. Oh, they came so close, but yeah, so far. Oh. It's, it's like having a lottery ticket, but only having five numbers instead of six. <laughs> And instead of the millions, you've won like 20 quid. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, so they've waited at this point two years to marry. And Elizabeth's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Like, you know, yeah, absolutely fine. Obviously, it turns out it's not fine. It's not fine because apparently the Queen was only told one part of the Royal Marriage Act of 1772. And that was that a person who is in the royal family has to be 25 and then gets to ask permission to marry someone who is obviously divorced or whatever the parameters are. But then they fail to tell her the second part of it, which is when she does ask Parliament, all of Parliament, that's the House of Lords and the House of Commons, both have to agree and then she has to wait 12 months for anyone to give any objections. And only then, when she's jumped through a million circus hoops, will she then be guaranteed to have the wedding. And as we know, as we know, not many people in Parliament supported Margaret and Townsend's relationship. And the Queen makes a perfect point that there was four divorcees within the House of Commons. So come on, it's like... Uh, was it the pot calling the kettle black? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was, this episode was so frustrating and I wanted to reach into the screen and give Margaret a hug. This episode, she, like, honestly, why didn't she get an Oscar or something for it? I know they don't give Oscars <laughs> for TV shows, but, you know, I was like, oh my God, she was yeah. so good in this. And this episode was one of the only, really, 
throughout this whole series, I actually was like infuriated with the Queen. Mm. I was like, just give yeah. Margaret what she wants. Like she's yeah. waited. She's done everything you've asked of her. Just give her what she wants. All she wants to do is marry this man. But again, the Queen as head of the church can't go, can't do that. She can't grant permission. And they say, well, if she wants to marry him, she can. But she has to give up her title. She has to give up all her, all the trimmings of being a royal. Yeah. And what it comes down to is, is she willing to do that? And at the end of the episode, no, she's not. And this is a very stark difference between the abdicated king, King Edward VIII, who asked um, his brother, who took over from him as king, for money per year as, as a salary. But she wouldn't have got any of that. Yeah, and... You know, at the end of the day, that is her birthright. That was all she would have known. So that must have been a difficult decision for her to make. Do I turn my back on everything that I've known mm. for the man I love? And she yeah. she wasn't willing to do that. Then you also get this side storyline where Philip is becoming more increasingly upset with the queen and her behavior and yeah. he doesn't agree with the whole margaret situation you know he's saying well the public are all for margaret and peter you know the public love them why can't you just give them what they want and she's like no and so as a side they're like well philip's been unhappy for years we'll just send him to australia to the olympics yeah. open the olympics maybe then he'll be happy oh but i'll be gone away for four to five months you know what father wants to miss his children for yeah. four to five months you won't see me your husband but mm. I'll do it and I think this episode it kind of felt like he did that to get away from Elizabeth yeah it's it's quite interesting actually because this is where I was mentioning earlier about the queen mother and Tommy Lassell's being the villains because there's at one point Prince Philip is having a conversation with the Queen Mother. They're in like a Highland fling up in Balmoral and they're doing some dancing. And Philip says, I'm sure you're the one who proposed that I go to Australia. And she said, it wasn't me. It was Tommy Lassell's. So there's where Tommy Lassell's, the, he's like the figurehead of the institution. He's the bad man. He's the, you know, he's the villain. But also he's always in cahoots with the Queen Mother, always. And also before that... The Queen, when she asked her private secretary at that time, his name's Michael, about the second part of the Marriage Act and why she wasn't told. He then, on in the next scene, is on the phone to Tommy Lassells, asking advice, like, Tommy, what should I do about this? And, the, and Tommy said, oh, leave me for a day. Let me think about this. And then Tommy also said the Queen Mother, meaning she came up with the idea to let to uh, Townsend uh, move away for the two years. And Tommy said the Queen Mother thought two years was enough time for Margaret to forget about Townsend so the scriptwriters are always using the Queen Mother and Tommy Lassells to really drive home some of the really unfair points of the institution and it, we don't know whether that's true you know and I don't, just don't know whether it's an artistic stylistic point or wh whether they're just keeping with the the main theme of the storylines but it just kept coming up for me all the time and same with Churchill it just drove me a bit mental, to be honest. I think they needed to do that, didn't they? So that you are rooting for one mm. or the other. Yeah. Yeah, it creates that tension. It creates that, like, you're either on our side or on their side. Yeah. So we end this episode with Philip getting ready to go to Australia and the Queen getting ready for a photo shoot. And as we've moved into maybe episodes seven, eight, nine, and 10, 
The queen has gathered momentum. The queen has gathered power. The queen has gathered her voice. And we see her in the final scene of this episode in all her regalia looking like the queen. And the photographer says, you're not Elizabeth, you're Queen Elizabeth Regina. And at that point, you can see Claire Boy's acting is superb. And she's not even saying a word and she just oozes monarchy. In, uh, you know, out into our eyeballs. And I just, <laughs> oh, she's just amazing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. This The end scene was fantastic. And again, the music starts playing mm. and that pulls you in. And yeah. that whole scene with the photo shoot, there's little corgis running around. <laughs> oh, yeah! <laughs> so let's wrap up then. What did you think of series one of The Crown? Altogether as a whole, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a cinematic masterpiece, like we said at the beginning, from the sets to the costumes, to the acting, to the casting, to the music. The whole thing, it just felt incredible to watch. And I don't know why I waited so long to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) You came to the dark side. Yay! (laughs) I agree. I think it's absolutely a masterpiece in TV and film. I think it's it's a wonderful uh, way of bringing entertainment to a family that is so interesting. Like everybody is interested in the royals in some way or another. And I think as well, maybe some people didn't know about the abdication and Edward and Wallace Simpson. And I think as soon as they get that little bit of history, um, what's happened to Harry and Meghan, kind of um, the reverberations of their departure becomes even more grounded in history. We've seen this happen a couple of times now. Yeah, I I think we learn from our past. We learn from the, the struggles, the trials and tribulations of the monarchy. And also we revere it and we love it and we hold it in high esteem. I think the way in which they've portrayed them is amazing, but also it's not, some of it's not true. And we really have to just see it as it is. It's an artistic portrayal of a family that we know very well, but it's not the truth 100%. Um, So you cannot really take the crown for verbatim because it's not. So I'm really looking forward to season two now, Rach. Yeah, we'll have to do another rewatch and more notes to be gathered. (laughs) You honestly, you cannot understand how much effort is taken Rachel and I to do this for this episode, but we'll do it for you, Royal Community. Let us know what you think. Any of the points we raised, do you agree with us? Do you not agree with us? Let us know over on Instagram at Keeping Up With The Windsors Pod or email us keepingupwiththewindsorspod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Yeah, you might not have even watched The Crown, so... Let us know if this has yeah. inspired you to have a little rewatch if you've not watched it in a while. Because I think this is actually probably my fifth time of watching The Crown season yeah. one. <laughs> and we have to be very blatantly honest. We're not getting paid to give this <laughs> review and we're not getting sponsored by Netflix. But if they want to sponsor us, they're more than welcome to. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today. We'll be back with our regular episode next week. Lovely to have you listening to us. And as always, we'll see you next week on Keeping Up With The Winters. winters.